Okay. So, Baruch Hashem, we are at the moment in time again of leaving that world of Tishabav, of sadness and grief and challenge, and in a certain way, the brokenness of Gullus. And we, are, we have entered now into the world of Elul. And I think for many of us, there's an unspoken belief that the, <laughs> the rolling of the calendar from Tishabav into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there's this kind of unspoken belief that people have that they feel that in some way, Chas Shalom Hashem said, you know, you need to suffer through all the negative stuff in your life so that you can have a hisaris to do tshuva. You can be inspired to do tshuva. <coughs> Excuse me. And that somehow, somehow it's, it's the tishubavs and the holocausts in our lives that are meant to destroy us and break us down into this toxic shame through which we therefore come to the recognition that we're totally messed up and we need to do tshuva. There's this unspoken belief that I think many of us have that that's the, uh, that that's the reason why the calendar flows the way it does. Of course, that's not the case. Of course, as we explained on Tishabov, toxic shame is actually what Tishabov comes to heal. The notion that we are given time in life to recognize negativity and grieve the losses of the disappointments that we have in our life is actually a very healing and very humanistic experience. And if you can take a, 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 a page out of, if we could take a page out of the process of psychotherapy, most people come to therapy in crisis. And when they're in crisis, they start to realize as, the, as they open up, as we open up and start to become vulnerable with ourselves, we realize that the crisis often is simply just an arrow, an arrow pointing deeper to a place inside of us that we can find a wealth of potential, a wealth of possibility, a wealth of capacity, not just potential, but talent and skill that are waiting for us to uncover. The magical world of the, in, the inner, the inside of a human being. And so in a certain way, the calendar follows the process from grieving to growth. And that's the world of Elul on a, on a very simple and basic level. We grieve the disappointments we have, and we recognize that the, the, the disappointments of Gullus are only there to allow us to look deeper within ourselves, to find new kaikas, to find new possibilities, to find new potential, things that we never imagined before. Because the truth is that all of Gullus is the presence of, not the absence of the Beis HaMikdash, but the presence of the possibility of becoming more. That's all of Gullus. All of Gullus is the presence of opportunity and possibility for more. And so that's where we find ourselves now, at the beginning of Elul. And since today is Rav Kuk's yard site, it makes sense for us to, 
to not just learn a piece from Rav Cook, but to internalize to internalize really the the entire life of Rav Cook that we learn in our generation. We learn from mostly from our uh, being able to read his writings and to listen to Shurim for those of us that 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 can't read his Hebrew, which is very hard. To, to listen to the shiurim of the big Tamidah Chachamim and the Tzaddikim that are teaching us his Torah and have completely blown through and broken through whatever political drama might have existed during Rav Kook's lives, during Rav Kook's life, and brought us and really have shown us, our Rebbeim have shown us the importance of being able to read the poetry of Rav Kook. Rav Kook, who exemplified what Rav Soloveitchik set, called the inner tremor of the religious person, the religious tremor. Rav Kook didn't have a religious tremor inside of him. Rav Kook was a, had a, a, a religious thunderbolt, an earthquake and a volcano that erupted out of him, not just in changing the, the state of Israel and forming it, in in a large way into what it is, but really for each and every one of us, expressed a volcano and erupted out of him words and teachings and ideas that are very mashiachdik. They say a story about the, about Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman, who Rav Cook was was very very much influenced by. Rabbi Nachman was uh, somewhat of a maverick. And the story goes that between him and the Shpaler Zayda, were, he, he was much younger than the Shpaler Zayda, but the Shpaler Zayda and him didn't necessarily see eye to eye. And apparently the, uh, the Shpaler Zayda, or, Nach, or the Shpaler Zayda, I think, sent a letter to Rabbi Nachman saying to, to, to Rabbi Nachman, or no, the other way around. Rabbi Nachman sent a letter to the Shpaler Zayda and said to the Shpaler Zayda, you're very outdated. I don't, he said it in a nice way, but... He basically said, you're very outdated. You're, you're about 100 years after your time. And the old regime of, of, of Judaism, Rabbi Nachman said to the, to, to the Shpala it's outdated. And the Shpala sent a letter back to Rabbi Nachman and said to Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman, and you are predated. You are too modern. If I am 100 years past my generation, you are 100 years before your generation. And of course, those were very prophetic words as we see the Torah of Rabbi Nachman now spread out. But if Rav Kook's writing is not Mashiachtic, if Rav Kook's writing is not idealistic enough to bring Mashiach, if it's not the Torah of Mashiach that the Bashem Tev talked about, then I don't really know what, what is. I mean, obviously we'll, we'll see as Hashem brings time, time and time uh, again, the disappointment of not having Mashiach, but the writings of Rav Kook, they speak to something that is in some way very old and in some way very new. It's very old because he writes like a child with the exuberance and the passion of a child. And at the same time, he's writing about things that are so beyond. We can only dream of tasting a little bit in our own life. And of course, I have to give a... a, a a big thank you to my Rebbe, Rebbe Weinberger, Moshe Weinberger, for introducing me to Rav Kook and for encouraging 
us to learn a svarim. You know, it's interesting. I was in shul this past week, and Rabbi Weinberger said over that uh, Rav Cook every year on during the month of El, he would learn through the Sefer Eretz Atshuva, which Rav Cook himself wrote. And he would say every year he would say the same thing. Wow, I saw Chidushim in this Sefer I had never known before. <laughs> so that Rav Cook would would reflect. He would read his own writings and he would learn from them. Which in a certain way is a very, very hush of a thing. Maybe we'll talk about that uh, in the next year. The idea of reflecting of what it means to make a cheshvan a nefesh and to reflect on what we were in the previous years or what we were in the previous year and, and how to learn from ourselves, how to learn from our history, how to read the book that we've written about ourselves. So Rav Kook wrote in a way which is clear when, when we read through many, if not most, of his writings, which I certainly haven't, but we see that Rav Kook is writing a diary, like many of the tzaddikim did. Rav Kook, in, in a certain way, I, I, I mean, he was, he, was a, he was a chassid, no doubt. Rav Kook was a rebbe without, an, without, without a chassidus. And if he had a chassidus, then his chassidus were, were, were the neshamas of all of the hearts of Judaism, all the hearts of Jews. We are his chassidim, our neshamas are his chassidim. Because Rav Kook wasn't writing in a way where he tried to teach us what we need to do. Instead, he wrote in a way and expressed in a way what is. He wrote existentially. He wrote about what is in, in the core of things. And he didn't need to write about what we need to do with that. He left that up to us. Of course, didn't spoon feed any of us. He instead explained to us and gave words to things that most of us have only just tasted hints of in inspiring moments. He put words to that. He put form to that. And he allows us to take the little murmurings that we have within ourselves and express them out into the world, into our lives. So we have from, we have from Rav Kook what's called Shemayna Kvatsim, what were put together, little sentences or paragraphs that really seem to have no context, they have no beginning, they have no end, but little blurts, blurts of wisdom, like stars in the middle of the, the, middle of the night, a little hole in the darkness, where Rav Kook just gives us a flash of something, a flash of inspiration. <clears throat> so Shemona Kvatsim in Kovitz Hey, Ois Kuf Ayin. This is what Rav Kook writes. The words are uh, simplistically understandable, but I think need, need, we need to express them and explain them and talk about what they have to do with El. Because I think this, that what Rav Kook is talking about here is, in a certain way, a big mistake we make about El, but in many ways, very instructive as to what El is about. And, of course, he's not writing anything about El here. But this is what Rav Kook says in Shemayin HaKvatsim. Whatever has any kind of boundary, we have to distinguish within that boundaried thing, we have to distinguish between the rutzon that exists on the inside and the boundaries that compel and restrict, he doesn't say inside or outside, but I'm, I'm adding that, between the 
the inner motivation, the inner will that exists inside, and the boundaries that constrict and, and in, in a certain way compel and force the, the, an object to exist. Rav Kook says, every spirit, every ratzon, every will that is allowed to be free, if you allow the inner will of something to be expressed and you give it the freedom to express itself, at the end, the end of that, the end of ratzon chafshi is toiv, is good. And all which is forced, all which is compelled, will result inevitably in the end in ra, in evil. Ad, until, Rav Kook says, until you can return the ratzon to good. <clears throat> Meaning, in all of those things that we are compelled to do in life, that which is compelled, Rav Kook says, at the end will result in evil will result in the downfall until we can, we can return ourselves back to the Ratzon Hatov, to the inner will, to the, the, the essence of that thing, the part which is called the Ratzon. Bechom Matzor, of course, goes on. All that is found, that means all of finite reality, Kivin Shiesh by Tzad HaGbala, since everything in finite reality has a boundary, like I am me, and you are you, and we're not the same, and a tree is a tree, and a chair is a chair, and a car is a car, and a star is a star. Everything in reality, since it has an aspect of boundary, therefore, it has something that compels it. Because everything, Rav Kook says, everything that has boundary has compulsion. Everything that is that is surrounded and contained has within it the, the, or I should say, let's say it this way, all boundaries compel, force, right? Think, think of it in terms of countries. A boundary keeps certain people in and certain people out. It forces things. And when I get close to a boundary and I want to overstep the boundary, there's tension because the boundary itself pushes back and I want to push forward. Since all existence has within it a tzad hagbala, it has a boundary. Therefore, it also has inevitably because that's that's what the boundary does. It has a, a, a side which forces it. And that is what's called. Rav Kook says the the tzad hara. That is the yetsahara of that thing. That is the Tzad Hara. Hishtal Musa, and this is a, a, a perfect example of Rav Kook's beautifully poetic way of expressing things. Hishtal Musa, The completion of something, the fulfillment of something, is contingent on its capacity for freedom. To leave the jail of that which forces, that which compels, and that which is impulsive. Hishtal Musay, if I want to be complete, 
I need to be able to find the, the, the freedom to allow the inner ratzon that I have to be expressed. So let's put this on the side for a minute. Let's put this on the side for a minute. I've quoted this a bunch of times already over the, over the last two years or so. Rabbi Weinberger asks the question, Rabbi asks the question, we say, all over Shir Hashirim, we have all different kinds of Hebrew words to describe love, the object of love, Rayasi, Yafasi, my beautiful, my beloved, my loved. What is it about the word dod? Dalad vav dalad. What is it about that word? The word doid in my in my uh, uh, excuse my my uh, pronunciation. What is it about the word doid specifically, and why anila doid dividoidili for elul? What's unique about the word doid? How come it's used when it's used? So Rabbi says a remarkable thing. He says there are there are many different kinds of relationships that people can have. But there are the, fundamentally, when you break it down, there are two basic kinds of relationships that we have. We have family and we have friends. And what are the, what are the differences between the two? So he says that when I have family, the relationship I have with family is defined completely by the essence of the fact that you're my sister. I mean, you being my sister or you being my brother or you being my aunt is not contingent on anything other than it happens to be that we are in the same family. Me and my sister were born to the same parents. That's what defines the fact that we are brothers and sisters. The relationship is defined by a very, very factual mitzias, a very factual fact that she is my sister. And because of that, there's A, no way that I can break that uh, bond. There's no way I could change that. You can't change. I mean, well, in today's generation, you, you could change anything, I guess. But you can't change the fact that my sibling is my sibling. I can't divorce my sibling. My sibling's my sibling. The only thing I could do is I could work on being nice to my siblings. I could work on having a nice relationship with them. But even if I don't have a nice relationship with them, the fact that they are my siblings is what defines the relationship. So I can't break that relationship. The only thing I could do is I could try hard at making it work. But since they're my sister, since, they're, since it's my parents, since it's my, my cousin, whatever, I take them for granted in a certain way because there's no risk of losing them. And what happens in that, in that, in that situation is the capacity for passion goes out, goes well, not necessarily out the window, but it has the, the risk of going out the window. With my family members, I'm not so passionate. I didn't choose them. There's no risk of losing them. And no matter what, they'll be there, we'll be there for each other. Obviously, we're talking about in a healthy way. But even if we're not going to be there for each other and we have Chastor Shalom a, a break uh, amongst siblings, you can't change that your sister's your sister, your brother's your brother. That's one kind of relationship. 
The other kind of relationship, of course, is the opposite of that, which is a friend. A friend is not contingent on the fact that we're friends. Although, once I make a friend, we, there, there is a certain healthy need for us to take our friends for granted and not constantly be worried about whether or not we're friends with them. There's an anxiety that pervades sometimes in our lives with uh, all kinds of FOMO and all kinds of sensitivities that exist. But there is a healthy need for us to accept our friends are, are our friends. And if, and if we get slighted by them in some way, it shouldn't really hurt because we should feel secure and comfortable in our relationships with our friends. But, Rabbi Weinberger says, the, the essence of that relationship began because I chose my friend and my friend chose me. It didn't begin because we knew inevitably we liked each other. We didn't, it didn't begin because we happened to be the same, cut from the same cloth. <clears throat> Developing a relationship with somebody means that I choose to be vulnerable with you, you choose to be vulnerable with me, I make an impact on you, you make an impact on me, and slowly over time there's a development of connection. And that relationship is contingent on the fact that we choose to be friends. It's contingent on the fact that we choose to like each other. And of course, a relationship like that is capable of being broken. We see specifically in our generation today that I remember when Verizon came out with an ad years ago, that was for, for when it used to be that cell phones were like, were, were new. <laughs> Verizon had a friends and family plan. And I remember reading somewhere, somebody pointed out that it's interesting how they put the word friends first because our generation seems to be much more connected with friends than we are to family. We've, we, we have chosen to be more connected and spend more time and value our friendships more than we do family. Whatever moral or ethical uh, 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 thing that, that brings up for, for you, that's, that's, a, that's a choice, but, or that's a discussion, I should say. But our relationship with friends is contingent on our choosing them and them choosing us. Of course, what would fall into that category would be a, a, a love between a husband and wife. A husband and wife chooses themselves. They choose each other. And the staple of that relationship is the ongoing friendship, the ongoing relationship between a husband and wife. It's, it's, it's how to keep the passion and the excitement alive. And of course, we have the, the capacity to break. We have the capacity for friendships and marriages, chas v'shalom, to end. With friends, I choose them. They're not there permanently. They have the capacity to break it, but the passion is through the roof. With family, there's no capacity to break the relationship, but the passion might not necessarily be there. So, so says Rabbi Weimager, in the Torah, the Torah demarcates for us and tells us the kinds of familial relationships that we are not allowed to marry. A brother and a sister, of course, are not allowed to marry. An aunt and her niece and her nephew are not allowed to marry. The closest relationship within the Torah, the closest familial relationship in the Torah that are allowed to marry each other is an uncle and a niece. Of course, we're talking about biblical times where <clears throat> relationships meant something very different than they do today. 
So the Torah says that an uncle is allowed to marry his niece, the sister of a Weinberger. The word died, besides it being, uh, besides our capacity to read it in, in, in two different directions, Dalad Vav Dalad. Excuse me, I, the, the word slips in my mind of what it's called when you can read something backwards and forwards. The word died means two things. It means uncle and it means lover. So Rambaker said that 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 is the, the depth of the word doit, where Hashem says to us, Kal Yisrael, our relationship has both aspects. We are both family and we are both friends. We are both family and we are both spouses. We have the best of both worlds. We have the capacity to know that there's nothing that's going to break our relationship with Hashem. And we also know that the passion is going to be there forever. <clears throat> so much so that if a person wants to say, I break off my relationship with, with God, they haven't broken their relationship with God. It's not possible. Just like you can't break off your relationship with your sibling, you can't break off your relationship with God no matter how much you try. You could say, I hate God. You could say, I don't want to be religious. You could say all different kinds of rejections to God. It's like I remember years ago telling a guy who was trying to uh, talk to me about Judaism and, and faith and atheism. And, and I said to him, look, you know, for me, the only difference between an atheist and a religious person is the atheist rejects rejects something and the the Jew or the religious, the religionist embraces something. But both people agree that there's something. You can't cut off your connection with Hashem when you're a Jew. It's not possible. It's just like you can't break your, your relationship that you have with your, with your sibling. You could reject them. You cannot talk to them. You can, you can, you can even murder them. But there's no, there's no possibility of breaking off the relationship. That's the secret of the word died. Anila died, even died, Dili. So says Rav Kok, Yesh l'chalik ben ratzon We have to make a distinction between the inner ratzon, the inner passion, the inner desire that is, is buried deep within every one of us, and those things that compel us. And so, of course, what I want to do today is I want to talk about the, the ratzon of religion and the hechrach of religion. The relationship between being compelled by the Torah, by the chiyuvim, by the, the responsibilities, and the ratzon of the Torah. The inner desire that every one of us has, that our neshamas buried, buried deep, deep, deep inside of our neshamas. <clears throat> of course, our brach is that every one of us should taste at least some of it in life. But that buried deep inside of each and every one of us, there's a ratzon to be mekayim the Torah. All aspects of the Torah, th those that we understand, those that we want, those that we don't want, it doesn't make a difference. Buried deep inside of us, in our neshamas, in the DNAs of our neshamas, there is a ratzon. And that ratzon is, as Rav Kook is saying here, we have to make a distinction between the ratzon and the hechrach. And that's what I want to try to do. And let's use, let's use as a basic example a, the place where we find boundaries the most. For me, the, the visual imagery of boundaries is is rushing water rushing water with a dam where a man-made dam or a, or or not a man-made dam 
a, a naturally good God-designed dam <clears throat> that controls and contorts and manipulates and, and diverts and moves the water in a specific direction. The inner desire of the water, especially when, when you add gravity to it and you add wind and you add all different kinds of environmental factors, the water has even though, of course, the water doesn't have this, but we're using this as a muscle, the water has an interest and a need to be mispashate, to, to roar and, and thunderously explode through whatever it can. It has pressure. And what, what we do is, if we, want to use the if we want to use the land that's near water, we have to put up a dam to divert the pressure and the tension of the water. The rut zone of a person wants to be mispashate completely. It wants to see as Adam, as the Torah says, Adam Rishon before the Chait, Adam Rishon before the Chait of the Eitzadas could see Mesaifa Ilmavad Saifai. That means, as the Svarim explained, that Adam Rishon's rut zone was expressed completely. His rut zone was expe expressed completely. And he was able to to experience and see, not just see, but to really see in its depth. His Ratzon was, was expressed from one end of the world to the other end of the world. But we all have natural dams. We have dams that exist to divert, manipulate, control, and direct where our Ratzon goes. The neshama, which is a chelok elikami mal mamish, the neshama, which is that piece of God that Hashem put inside of, a, uh, of, of us, the neshama never ever remains still. Even when we can meditate, and even when we can spend time being still with ourselves, and we can experience the menuchas anefesh, a true menuchas anefesh of a Shabbos, when we can experience the true chain which is the, the letters of Noach, of Noach. Noach in Aramaic means to stop. Noach means to be relaxed. When, even when we can be completely still, the neshama is vibrating. The neshama is moving. Where is the neshama headed? The neshama has one direction. The neshama wants to be mispashet al-kala kulay. It wants to be, express itself completely to all four corners of the universe, mesayfai ilambat sayfai in its intention, in its hope, in its searching for and craving for godliness. That's what the neshama is, and that's the, the, the language of the neshama is called ratzon. Ratzon is the inner desire to be mispashet throughout the entire universe, that myself can be mispashet throughout the entire universe in the search of one thing, God. <clears throat> whether it's transcendence or it's imminent, whether it's a religious search or, an, or a not a religious search, a spiritual search, a, a material search, the neshama makes no distinctions. The neshama wants simply to be mispashet, which means to explode and erupt like a volcano in its search for godliness. And wherever it finds godliness, the neshama is, has menuchas anafesh which is why the neshama is able to have menuchas and nefesh doing nothing. The neshama doesn't care. The neshama doesn't 
quote unquote, need anything. The rut zone of the neshama is the inner will of the neshama. The word will, somehow we associate with forcing. Like we say, you know, have willpower. Willpower to us seems to mean that you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and force yourself to do something against the inner demons that you have. But the word ratzon by us means the exact opposite. The word ratzon by us is the truest inner desire that is buried deep inside each and every one of us to want to be mispashet on the whole world. For those psychology students, Freud got it wrong. What Freud got wrong was that he attributed it, and, and his, you know, his main Talmud, Jung, argued with him. Uh, Jung, Jung seemed to get it much more correctly than Freud. What, what, what Freud wanted to do was to argue that at the core essence of all of our existence is brokenness, is neuroses. There's conflict, there's tension, there's, there are things that we want, and it's all, it's all competitive and painful, and we don't want to know about it, and so we have a whole uh, a process of, of unconscious mechanisms and dynamics that are built over each other until we get to consciousness and we're all basically just a disarray of uh, a bunch of chaotic inner impulses that simply want to drive us crazy. Freud didn't go deep enough. What goes underneath Freud's entire picture, both all of his uh, uh, different dynamics, all of his different models that he presented, what goes, what he missed that is buried deep underneath that, that Jung talked about, of course, is a soul. The soul, even though Jung was, was not a Jewish, was not Jewish at all, he, he clearly learned many of, many Jewish uh, uh, teachings, but what's buried underneath all of the chaos of the unconscious is a soul. <coughs> is a soul. And that soul wants to express itself and to explode everywhere. It wants to go to the four corners of all of creation. That's what it wants. And at the same time, it has the capacity to be silent and still, as long as it's with Hashem. It doesn't need anything. It doesn't want anything. It just exists in a state of searching for God. When I say he doesn't want anything, I mean that with a lowercase w. When we say the word rutzon, the, the translation of the word rutzon into will <coughs> is, not, is not, we can't be confused between that and what we say that we have to force ourselves. Force yourself to do it. That's your willpower. That's not what rutzon is. The rutzon of a person is the inner, most innocent desire to explode out. And when I say explode, I mean it with that kind of, with that kind of veracity, with that kind of tension, with that kind of pressure, to explode out and be completely connected to its source and its essence and its beauty that's called Hashem. That's the, the, the way the Ratzon works. That is what Ratzon is. But Hashem made it. That Adam and Chava, who were completely an expression of that Ratzon, Adam and Chava were given a capacity to decide whether or not they wanted the Ratzon to exist 
on the outside and remain in a state of neshama, being shaylet alaguf, where the ratzon is completely expressed, or they wanted to have what's called bechira. And this is a much, much longer shmuz to, to, to get into. The nachash seduced chava, whatever that means. It doesn't mean like the way, the way we would use the word seduction, the way the Sfarim explain it, and Rav Tzaddik and the Maral. It doesn't mean that. He seduced her. But in, the, in its most basic form, the eating from the Eitz Adas was to say that man decided, Adam and Chava decided, that for whatever reason, they thought that it was the right thing to do, that the, the, the neshama should be buried deep down, and instead of the Ratzon simply expressing itself and searching for God, man, with our intellect, with, our, with those aspects of us that are not the Ratzon, our, our capacity to make decisions, all of the seriousness of, of maturity and adulthood, man decided that we were going to search for God through our manliness, not through our divinely inspired Ratzon, but through our very human minds with all of the, 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 the different nuances of different needs and desires that we have, and the cultural impact of what's right and wrong, and what the Torah says in right and wrong, Adam and Chava made a decision to say we are giving up, so to speak, the Ratzon, and instead we are choosing Bechira. We are choosing Bechira. We are choosing for man to have, although that's maybe not what, 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 not what their intention was, what the outcome, certainly the outcome of what Adam and Chava got after they ate from the Eitz Adas was, it's not so simple. You can't just have a rut zone and have the rut zone expressed. You're not going to find godliness all over the place. Now you have to search. Now you're really going to have to work because the rut zone is going to be hidden deep down inside of you. And instead, what you're going to be left with is all of the machinations of what it means to be a human being. You're going to be frail. Things are going to take effort. You're going to fail. You're going to be down on yourself. Things are going to feel difficult. Even in those things that you find success not going to work so well. You're not going to be able to be completely proud of it. As you become older in life, you're going to realize that there are things that are competing with each other. There's sometimes you're going to almost inevitably always have to make decisions about things that are the lesser of two evils. Life isn't going to work with the, with the, the, the beautiful and intuitive expression of the neshama through Ratzon. In fact, we have a word to describe desire. The word that describes desire that we all know is a word that in fact mimics, it absolutely mimics the way the neshama works. The neshama has a ratzon that is an intuitive way for the neshama to find God. And the guf, the intellect, all of those things that are related to the very manly, humanly, I should say, human aspects of our lives that are not Ratzon, also desires and also craves. And the desire and the crave of the guf is called taiva. Taiva. 
And taiva works very, very similar to the way ratzon works, which is why many of us get very confused between what it means to be attracted to God, what it means to be attracted to Judaism. Attractive Judaism is, is, very, hard to, is very hard for many of us because when we hear the word attraction, we hear Yetzirah. We hear impulsivity. Impulsivity. When you go out to war against, against your enemy, that's this week's parsha, and we find an Ashes Yifas Torah, we find a beautiful woman. So the Torah has a whole, there's a whole process of what happens when a man goes to war and he finds a beautiful woman and he's attracted to her and what he's supposed to do with her. And the Torah gives a whole description about trying to make her and you take her captive, of course, because we're talking about uh, a woman, as, as Chazal explained, a woman that was, put it, that was put out onto the front lines in order to distract and attract the, the, the Jewish soldiers. So what happens if you feel an attraction? What happens if you're moved and you're distracted by that and you, and you want her, as the Torah says? So the Torah says, take her. Do, do a, a series of things to her that will make her look not so appealing. And when she's not so appealing, then see whether or not you're still attracted to her. If you're still attracted to her, the way the Svarim explained it, if you're still attracted to her, it's a simon from Shemayim that she is meant to be yours from your Ratzon. But if you're not still attracted to her, then you will realize that you almost made the mistake of Taiva. The relationship between Taiva and Ratzon are which is why many of us, rightfully so, we, our whole tradition is filled with gedarim and boundaries for our taiva. Why? Just to explain this, we're not going to go through this in, in its full depth. We, can't, we're not, we don't have the time to give, it, to give it right now. Taiva is the fantasy. It's the fantasy that our minds create that say to us, this is good for us. It's a dimyan, it's a fantasy. It looks and it mirrors the way the neshama and its ratzon act. So what would be an example of this? What would be an example of this? Kavod, let's talk about kavod, our ego. <clears throat> let's say I worked for 10 years at a, at a job and I get promoted in different ways. And with each promotion, it's, it's interesting. I read this report a few years ago. They said that the greatest, the greatest motivation for work, you would think is all, it would be money. Give somebody a raise and they'd be motivated to work harder. And what the, what the, what the research out of industrial uh, and organizational psychology seems to say is that money is not the greatest motivator. <clears throat> in, in latitudinal studies, what they've shown is that promotions are the greatest motivator. Give someone a promotion, show them that you are machshiv them, and they will, they will work harder. Because it's a very natural process. When somebody feels more valued than not, then they have the capacity to, to do more. But the question becomes, how do we tell the difference between the taiva of kavod and the rut zone for kavod, meaning 
if somebody were to turn to me and to say to me, you know, Yitzi, you do a great job at A, B, and C, and I can internalize that, and that makes me feel good. And through that, through internalizing that, I am now motivated to do better at that thing. Then that's called ratzon. That means that the person was me, the person acknowledged me, the person gave me a compliment, the person cherished and valued something about me, that I was able to internalize that, that made me feel good, I enjoy that, and the net result of that is, I am a better person for it. What is the opposite of this? <clears throat> the dimion of this, the mirror, fantasy, Disney version of that, you give me a compliment. I feel, therefore, I am better. I internalize for myself something about this is good. But the net result of all that is, I now think I'm better than you. The net result of that is, I don't have to work as hard. The net result is, I take that as flattery, and that makes me feel excited inside. The net result of that is all different kinds of things. And it doesn't allow me to be more confident with myself. It allows me to be more excited about myself. That would be the taiva of kavod. And that's, of course, what we know, that the Mishnah Pergeva says that whoever chases kavod, kavod will run away from him. What does that mean? It means the taiva of kavod, if I chase the taiva of kavod, if I want to be recognized and admired by people, and I chase that, I, I try to do things, I try to put myself in the limelight, and when I put myself in the limelight and I don't get it, I argue for it, I say, no, 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 it's coming to me. Whoever chases kavod from the place of taiva, kavod, as the Kamarna says, kavod, the true kavod, true confidence, true feeling good about yourself, true motivation that grows out of feeling good about yourself, true pride, is going to run away from you. In other words, the word kavod in that sentence means two different things. If you chase kavod, then that's a simon that you're, you, you're, you're compelled by taiva. If you're compelled by taiva to kavod, kavod then the inner kavod, the true kavod, the kavod that you're supposed to get in life, will run away from you. And that's why it's important for each and every one of us to make a distinction in our lives between those things we are compelled to, like taiva, not like taiva. Taiva is the greatest example of being compelled. Taiva compels us to do something. Taiva makes us choose impulsively. That means we don't think, we don't use our, our minds to try to understand something, to try to work something through. We just act because we want and we assume that if we want, we should get it. <clears throat> Taiva, <coughs> which mimics the way the, the neshama works, we have to distinguish between that and the true ratzon of the neshama, which, is, which also works with magnetism. It's attracted to things. It is compelled also, because the neshama is also a force of compulsion. But that compulsion is a compulsion for God. That's a compulsion that is consistently searching for God, whether it be in this second, in this moment, or it be a, a mission that I have for my entire life, for the entire universe. It doesn't make a difference. The neshama is 
pulled and magnetized towards God. Taiva is pulled and compelled by my interest in becoming greater for the sake of, for, excuse me, for the sake of fulfilling the node, the, the hole and the failure inside of me to try to make me feel that the failures about me and those aspects of my life that are fragmented and, and, and broken shouldn't be there. In other words, let me, that I didn't, I didn't explain that correctly enough. The neshama desires through ratzon. The ratzon of a person is healthy and happy wherever it is. So long as, at, is at, so long as the ratzon is allowed to exist, the ratzon is there. And the ratzon is consistently connected to God and consistently wants that connection to God to be there and wants that, that, that connection to God to expand throughout his life. Taiva, Taiva is an inner compulsion that I have to try to eradicate my being frail. <clears throat> Taiva means that I want something and I want that thing with the energy of saying I should get it because I can't handle the disappointment of not having it. Taiva is the inner pull of not being able to deal with the emptiness that is inside of each and every one of us. That inner existential angst that each and every one of us carries within us to want, uh, that, I'm sorry, that inner existential angst that is buried within each and every one of us, Taiva seeks to fulfill. <clears throat> And that's why, for those of us that are more sensitive, when I do something that's very taiva-related, which could be getting angry, in other words, I'm using taiva not to, to describe simple, uh, uh, let, let's just be frank, sexual desire. I'm talking about taiva, which is the, a word that is used to describe the compulsions of our bodies. Our bodies are compelled to want things, to act impulsively, because we essentially recognize that we are not perfect. And Taiva seeks to make that whole. And that's why those of us that are more sensitive, after we've finished with whatever Taiva it is, whether it's yelling at our friend or our, or, or our spouse, or, um, or stealing something, or, or searching covered and getting covered, afterwards there's an emptiness. There's an emptiness. It's not a coincidence that there's an emptiness inside of us. But when we do something that's against our conscience, when we do something that's against our rut zone, which the rut zone and the conscience are not the same thing. Maybe we'll, hopefully we'll be able to explain what, what, how that works. When I do something that's Taiva based, there's always an emptiness that follows because the psyche is always searching to fulfill that emptiness. And when we put taiva into it, the taiva dissipates. And what we're left with after the taiva is the emptiness of that existential angst that I'm not perfect and I'm not going to get everything I want. And I need to learn how to grieve the disappointments in my life of those things that I wish that I have gotten, even those good things that I think I should have gotten. 
that I haven't gotten and recognize that nothing can fulfill that emptiness. Nothing can make that disappointment go away other than my capacity to accept the fact that I am frail. So we have Ratzon and we have Taiva. <clears throat> but of course we have the human psyche is so large from the neshama, the rutzen of the neshama, to the taiva of the guf. It's an ocean. It's universes apart. How we get from the rutzen of the neshama all the way up to the taiva of the guf. They are so far apart. They are the, it's perhaps the greatest distance in life is between the rutzen and the taiva. So now we have to do we have to understand a little bit about how this works psychologically. Because the Svarim say that the intellect contains the Neshama, at least in the world of Chabad. The Neshama resides in the Seichel, resides in the mind. We have to understand what the difference is between our minds, not so much our hearts, but our minds and our Neshamas. Now, I don't know, I haven't learned enough Chabad Sfarim, but in my conversations with one or two mashpiyim in the world of Chabad, this is what I, what I gather, this is what I think. <clears throat> the neshama holds its own. The neshama doesn't need anything. The neshama doesn't even need Torah. That's what we say, one of the Sfarim explains, Had Hashem brought us to our Sinai and not given us the Torah, that would have been good enough. And everybody's bothered. What does it mean? I thought coming to our Sinai was simply in preparation for receiving the Torah. What was it about being by our Sinai that if we would have been there, it would have been good enough without, without getting the Torah? So one of the Sfarim explained, because you know, that, when we, that one of the things that Chazal say that, when, that, that happened when we came to Har Sinai and we were standing around prior to receiving the Torah was that Hashem revealed Himself in a way that the, the, the influence of the Nachash, the energy of the Nachash that had become embedded inside each and every one of us from the moment that Adam and Chava ingested that, that fruit from the Eitz Adas, that energy, that those DNA molecules that existed inside each and every one of us went away, were washed away. And so it says is that therefore, when we were standing by Har Sinai, we had an opportunity to be Adam Rishon Kaidam Achet. And Adam Rishon Kaidam Achet was pure Ratzon. And the Ratzon, within the Ratzon itself, there's the awareness of being Mekayim Kalatayra Kula anyway. I don't need to be told to listen to the Torah. I know within myself that there's such a thing called Shabbos. The Neshama knows there's such a thing called Shatness. The Neshama knows what Paraduma is. The Neshama knows everything. And so, that would have been good enough. The Ratzon, the Neshama, the Neshama knows. The Neshama knows everything because the Neshama does not exist in the world of the intellect. <clears throat> the neshama is a chelik mamish. And the yearning of the neshama, which is its energy, its language, is searching for godliness. And it finds godliness everywhere. It sees godliness everywhere. It sees Hashem in everything. In a speck of dust, into the 
into the galaxies, into the universes. I have a friend that, that, that uh, has a very, very expensive telescope. We're supposed to go uh, look through it. He said to me, the things that you can see in there, you could see the rings on, on, different, on, 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 on different planets and stars. I don't really know my, my astronomy that well, but being awed by nature, that moment of looking into the nature and being completely awed, and there's no more thinking, there's no more, there's no more intellectual calculations, there's no more hard, cold science to try to explain to you What's going on? I think we said this a few weeks ago. <clears throat> I was reading a book by a guy named Weber, a German, a German uh, poet, scientist, philosopher. He, he seems to be confused as to how he wants to be known. But he asks the question, who has a more accurate description of nature? The scientist, the ecologist, <clears throat> the ecologist who could look and explain to you how things work, or the poet who can sit in the middle of a forest and experience the beauty of what it means to be surrounded by trees that reach up to the skies. Who has a more accurate picture of the universe? Being awed by nature and being awed by a speck of dust means to taste a little bit of what the neshama is experiencing inside. But we don't live lives like that. We don't live lives with a constant doorway of inspiration into the Ratzon of the Neshama. We live lives after the Torah was given to us. We live lives of the intellect. When, the, when I think, I believe, what the Alter Rebbe means, and what, what it means in the world of Chabad, that the Neshama exists inside the Mayach, I, I very much would like to hear from people who, who know more than I do about this, but this is my, my, my thinking. When it comes down to me choosing something in the here and now in life, every choice that I make, I can't sit and meditate on my whole life until the neshama is ready to, to, to do the right thing. Life moves with time and things go. <clears throat> and so when it comes time in life to think about the things that I need to do, I use my intellect. The intellect is not the neshama, but the intellect can choose based on the neshama's knowledge. The neshama existing in the intellect, I, th I think, I think, means that the neshama's, the awareness of what the neshama wants is the way the intellect needs to choose. The intellect, when the intellect can sit down and think about things, and recognize my taiva wants to go in one direction, my ratzon wants to go in another direction, I will choose the ratzon, that's called bechira. It's not that I experience the ratzon in that moment. I don't, I don't live in a, in a meditative state all the time, knowing that I feel right now that the right thing to do or the thing that I want to do right now is that mitzvah, no. But when the intellect chooses, because the intellect is the, is, the, is the energy that we all live with on a day-to-day -day basis, when the intellect chooses, let the intellect choose with the knowledge and awareness of what the Ratzon wants. Even if I don't feel it right now, even if the Ratzon isn't revealed right now, but allow myself to choose based on that as opposed to the fleetingness of the taiva in a moment. So that's a little bit of a hakdama. So let's go back. 
Whatever has boundaries. We have to distinguish between the inner feelings that want to be expressed completely and the hechrech, the, the, the finite, the very finite things that create boundaries for us, that in certain ways constrict us and compel us to act. Left unchecked, the constrictions in our lives will inevitably destroy us, says Rav Kook. All things that, all the boundaries we have in life can constrict us. And anybody that has had anxiety can know what this, what this feels like. And you get a little anxious about something, you get nervous, and your mind starts to kind of fold in on itself. And then slowly but surely, left unchecked, the anxiety swallows a person up whole. Because I'm afraid of this, then I'm a little bit more afraid of that, I'm a little bit more afraid of that, until eventually I, I check out. I'm too afraid, I can't live. Those things that constrict us, those boundaries that I have, if I have a boundary between, my and my, between me and my neighbor, and I simply focus on the boundary, then I will build bigger boundaries and more boundaries and more boundaries until I will have such boundaries that two things will happen. First of all, I will have kicked my neighbor out, but second of all, I, I wouldn't be able to live because instead of having a house, I would simply have a big wall, which I think was what many people are afraid of when it comes to uh, Trump wanting to Trump having wanting to build 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 a wall because the tension between the wall and the energy that exists within is constant all the time. The neshama wants to express itself all the time, and the goof the body wants to restrict it all the time in a healthy way. In a healthy way, if my neshama was left to to experience life and live life like Adam was in Gan Eden, I'd walk around naked. If, if, if I, I'd, I'd eat whatever I wanted, I would, I would see Hashem wherever I want. Not in, a, not in a perverse, impulsive way, but in a beautiful, completely unrestricted way. And the way we live today is that there has to be tension between that which compels me, that which, that which keeps me safe, that which, that which keeps me grounded, and that inner pull, that inner push to be expressed out. It's fascinating how the month of Cheshvan is called Mar Cheshvan, the bitterness of Cheshvan. And the Svarim explain that the reason why that's true is because Cheshvan has no Yom Tovim in it. There are no Yom Tovim in it. it. It comes on the heels right after we've gone through the Yom Naroim, Rosh Hashanah, Sarasamei Tshuva, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Sukkot Beit Sashra'eva, Hashanah Rabbah, and then that feeling, that down feeling that we have of missing the Yom Tovim and then not having any Yom Tov, that almost sense of depletion and defeatedness of, and pining for what we just had, that's why we have Mar Cheshvan. But this farm asks, what about Elul? Elul also doesn't have any Yom Tovim. In fact, I saw recently that the Alter Rebbe says that Every day of El itself, it's a Pella, why every day of El itself is not its own Yantiv. And I was thinking that the truth of the matter is, it's not that El has no Yantiv. The month of El is a Yantiv. Rabbi Nachman says something like this. 
but just to expound on it. The month of Elul is a yantiv. What is it a yantiv of? The Svarim explain. It's a yantiv of hachana. A yantiv of preparation. But let's talk about preparation for a minute. Because I said a minute ago that we don't live in a meditative state all the time of, of getting to the ruts on that I truly want and then choosing from that place. We live with our intellects. We live with needing to make decisions in real time. And we have to move, our life moves, life moves. Especially nowadays, we're very, very obsessed with being busy. Life moves. And so we have to make decisions on the spot, whether or not we feel it or not. <coughs> they say that Rebbeil Eger was a mile. And they would bring, they would, they would schedule a bris for a certain, a certain day on the eighth day after baby was born. And, it was, and people would get really, really nervous because Rebbeil Eger would spend the whole day living in Hachana. And at the last second, right before Shkia, he would quickly do the bris, and the bris would be over. But the, the baby and the parents would have to wait in a whole day while he would, he would do his achanas, and they would get nervous because sometimes they wondered whether or not he would, he would pass Shkia. What is the act of achana? The act of achana in this farm is what's called the Gilui Haratzon. Every act I take, like, like we know, Every act I take, I need to think about before I take it. Otherwise, we call it impul Im impulsivity. Impulsivity itself also takes place, as we just explained. Impulsivity also takes place in the context. Impulsivity always is my taiva wanting to make me feel like I am complete and whole by myself. It's ego. That's what the taiva is. It's the, in the incapacity, the inability for me to recognize that I am not whole and perfect, and I don't have to be whole and perfect, that I can allow myself to be frail. The capacity to confront my frailties. Impulsivity is to say, I don't want to think about that. I just want to do what I want to do in the moment. <clears throat> Hachana, preparation, means that I meditate on and get to let go of all the things that distract me from my ratzon. Hachana is about preparing to do an act because my neshama wants to. In other words, it's not enough that I commit myself to the Rabbi Nishleilam to live a life of Torah and mitzvahs. It's not enough that Hashem tells me I need to do this and I do it. That's not enough. <clears throat> what I have to do instead is each and every one of us in our own way, I need to find the place within me that's called the neshama. I need to find that place within me that has a ratzon for Hashem. I need to find the place within me which is always, not. it need, doesn't need to be kindled, it's always on fire with a burning desire to find godliness. Each and every one of us has the capacity and the need, the responsibility to go within and to find the place within ourselves that is called neshama, that is called the essence of what I am, not who I am. Who I am has to do with the details of my personality and my life. What I am, that's the question. What am I? What I am is my neshama. 
Elul is a time of revealing my neshama. It's about revealing my ratzon. It's the time of year that I make the statement to Hashem that I have re-found myself. It's the time that I make the statement to myself and experience enough inspiration and enough intimacy with God and enough connection through my ratzon, enough beauty and enough love that the rest of the year, all of the actions that I take, which I don't remember the, 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 the intimate inspiration that I've experienced, I don't remember that all the time, but the month of Elul is the time of revealing within myself what I am so that the rest of the year I can make choices with the memory of what I am. It's fascinating how so much of Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron, a day of remembrance. What are we remembering? What are we remembering so much? So in some of this farm they explain what we're remembering is who we are. That's what we're remembering. I'm remembering the rest of the year. I am remembering the inspiration I have of being so deeply and inextricably connected to myself. In a way in which I experience myself as being godly. In a way in which I experience my ratzon, I taste my ratzon, my ratzon is there, it's expressed. That I could let go of all of the crazy questions I have and decisions that I have. <clears throat> that I could let go of all the intellect and all the cheshbainas and all the taiva that I have for ego, for anger, for lust, for gluttony. All of those things I could let go of. And I can go in search of my soul, what sits at the core of me. That the gilui haratzon is megale. It reveals to us our our kavana for the rest of the year. This that El is a time of hachana means that El is the time that we prepare, but it's not preparing for the future. It's only preparing for the future because in the future I could look back on this moment and this inspiration that I can taste during Elul and, and kind of suck on the bones of it, live off the memory of it. But the month of Elul is about the presence of Hashem in my life in the deepest, deepest, simplest, and most transcendent way. This is what Rav Kook is teaching us. All Ratzon Chafshi, when the Ratzon is completely revealed and is able to reign free, that will always bring me to good. Once I get lost in the boundaries of where things exist, that's going to lead me to, to evil. Good things happen when I get to know myself. Good things happen get ha, good things happen to me when I get to know and I get to taste little little droplets of inspiration, little droplets of my ratzon, my neshama. Rav Kook and all of his Eris Chuva revolves around this point. How can a person be Megal of the essence of what they are? How can each and every one of us not run around to every self-help book or to every therapist that we can 
but run deeper inside of ourselves to find the essence of what we are. Because at the end of the day, what our generation suffers from most is the ability to taste the beauty of ourselves. What we suffer from the most, what we don't understand, what is so lacking in the way we were raised and what is so lacking in our generation today is the recognition that tshuva starts with intimacy. Tshuva starts with Tashuv el Hashem, but what aspect of Hashem? The Hashem that's buried deep inside of you. I'm not talking about gaiva. I'm talking about the neshama that exists inside of each and every one of us, the core essence of what I am. To be able to taste in a very inspirational way what I am, to be able to read through your own writings and to be inspired by your own writings, not with pretentiousness, not with gaiva, but in a very simple way. What is more inspiring than to look at myself and say, you know, I did that thing. I don't need you to encourage me. If you like the things that I do, that's great. But can I like the things that I do? Can I like the thoughts that I have, the ideas that I have? Can I like the way that I've transformed my life? Can I like the way that I've transformed the people around me? Can I appreciate and be proud of myself? That's what Elul is about. Elul says, you want to make it to the day of what's called Hayoim Haras Olam. This is the day that the world was created which of course we know, the world is created on Chaf Elul, but the universe only exists for that moment when Hashem said, Nasa Adam, Nasa Adam, let us create man. Even the act of creating the world is a hachana, is a preparation, is a giloi, is a revelation of the inner Ratzon of Hashem. I think I've said this before, and, we'll, and, and, and we'll, this will we'll, we'll conclude. <clears throat> when Hashem created man, he didn't create us and then look at us and say, I love you. He created us as a d- direct result of the fact that he desired something. In all that exists with all the midos that Hashem has, Hashem is, Hashem, the Yud Gimel Midas Arachimim, and Hashem is also, is also uh, you know, Kaviochel in some way, he, he's angry at us when we do Averas, with all of that stuff. The rutzon of Hashem, the desire of Hashem, what is Hashem yearning for? What is it that Hashem wants to be mispashet throughout the universe? He wants to be mispashet me. That's what he wants to do. And when I say me, I mean to carry the me of each and every one of us. Hashem wants to reveal his rutzon. And I am a direct result of that. It's not that he created me, looked at me and said, I love you, now now come back to me. He created me because he needed to express love into the world. And I am an object of his love. I am the birth of his love. I am the result of his love. And when I can experience feeling desired by Hashem, when I can feel that I am the rutzon of Hashem, not that I do that which Hashem wants me to do. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about on a deeper level that I am desired by Hashem, then I, within me, can feel a desire for Hashem. And then I say to that which says, Ani l'daydi, I say v'daydi li. That very, uh, again, I forget the word, it's, that, that it's usually on my mind, 
The capacity to read the letters backwards and forwards, doid, dalad vav dalad, that, that symbolizes two kind of beings, if you will, me looking into Hashem's eyes and Hashem looking into my eyes and me seeing a reflection of myself in his eyes and him seeing a reflection of me in my eyes. And then it's not just a reciprocal, intimate relationship between the two of us of doid, but I need doid, doid, doid is both. We are family and we are passionate. We have that which compels us to be together because Hashem made a brisk with us. And we also have that which we are, which our Ratzon wants. Vidaydili. And it goes backwards, bounces back and forth. Hashem says to us, I don't love you just because you're family. And I don't have passion for you just because we're friends. So my bracha to all of us is that we are able to tune into this month of Elul, which is called the Yimei Haratzon, the days of Ratzon. We can tap into the Yimei Haratzon and recognizing and inspiring ourselves in the most intimate and personal ways, not to change our actions, but to find ourselves, to find those moments and those places within ourselves we can be inspired to feel Hashem's love for us and express our love back to Him in that very reciprocal and intimate way. And we should be zaychel, like Rav Kook says, to be l'chalek ben harotzon v'achreach. And to learn that since we live in a world of action, the world of hechreach, of hagbala, of compulsions, and we are compelled by external forces with the amounts of responsibilities we have, and by internal forces, by the different parts of ourselves that want to manage our lives up to the wazoo, down to those things that we, we want, the taiva that we have, the taiva we have for busyness, with all of that stuff that most of us are aware of, that most of us spend our time thinking about, all of the, the different responsibilities we have on, on, on this planet, that Hashem should give us, in the words of Rav Kook, the capacity, and recognize that Hashem should give us the capacity to return our Ratzon to us, and that we can daven, Hashem, please reveal to me my neshama. Please show me within me where that place, that mayan, that fountain, that volcano, that Rav Kook's life was, that volcano of Ratzon that's hidden inside of me. And let no one ever step over the boundary and compel me to feel any less than myself in my true nature. <clears throat> and let us recognize that the object of our Ratzon is Mashiach, with the Beis HaMikdash, in that place where we can go back to being Adam Arishan Kadam Achet, with our Ratzon being completely revealed, and the true beauty of what each and every one of us can be, and that nobody's beauty need contradict anybody else's beauty. Merit Hashem will continue this uh, next week, and I appreciate everybody joining and listening. Thank you very much.